never wanted to be in a fancy metropolitan broadcast facility where the most thought-provoking thing within view is an occasional four-car pileup on the freeway below. We like being miles from nowhere, in the middle of a vineyard that cannot be seen from the little two-lane road on the other side of that rise. Our barn has awesome acoustics and was built with hand tools over a hundred years ago. Nonetheless, we've got some really state-of-the-art broadcast technology inside. And our wine cellar wants a root cellar that is absolutely packed with wine we've collected or been given by friends. Welcome. You have just set foot on Grape Encounters Radio Property, where we don't believe in no trespassing signs. But let's make this our little secret. Oh, and that wine is protected by the sweetest-looking golden retriever who dated a Doberman for a while, so don't get any ideas. me some ice skin me a peach save the fuzz for my pillow Alrighty, it is time for your weekly grape encounter and i must tell you that i have had so many things rattling around in my brain this week just a bunch of things that i'd love to be able to have enough time to talk to you about we won't be able to get to even a tiny bit of the stories that i'd like to cover and thoughts that i've had but there is one story that I think is part of a, let's call it a bittersweet week for me. It has to do with the environment and it has to do with the story that I've covered for a really long time. It relates in a large way to the wine business and the environment. And no, it's not about sustainability, which we've talked about many, many times. It's a story that I think is so important and something really wonderful has happened that needs to be reported on. We're going to get into the story in a much bigger way in the next week or two. I just want to make sure that I get the exact right guests on to tell the whole story because it's a story that goes back almost a decade. And given the relaxation of environmental policy in this country in the last several months, I was really concerned that the ultimate outcome of what's been going on up in the Finger Lakes region of New York was going to be something really, really negative. Just this week, I was horrified to see that the emission standards for automobile exhaust have been lowered dramatically. And it's taken decades, I mean, maybe three even four decades to move into a direction and a place where we now can go into a city like Los Angeles that when I was a kid was choked with smog where the air was so brown that you couldn't see even, you know, a half a mile in front of you. You, you certainly couldn't read the Hollywood sign. So anyway, with everything seeming to be moving in a negative direction, like I said, I became very concerned about this issue up in the Finger Lakes. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it has to do with a company from Texas that has been fighting for years and years and years to store uh, liquid petroleum gas underneath Seneca Lake. And uh, they've got a lot of money to fight for what they want, and they've been doing it very aggressively. But at the same time, there's been a very vocal and a very large opposing group that has fought tirelessly to try to prevent 
a tragedy or a potential tragedy, I should say, of just monumental proportion. And they've done it with very little money. They've done it with all volunteers, but there have been hundreds of businesses involved, property owners, and a lot of volunteers that have been willing to do Everything from knocking on doors to lying down in front of trucks trying to enter the property. Because, I mean, here's what's been going on there. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version, but this did not come from Reader's Digest. It's just a phrase. What the issue is, is that there are abandoned salt caves there. The, the caves were created because of a long, long history of mining some of the most pure salt in the world. A lot of that salt used for medical purposes, very, very important. The cave is created because, as I understand it, they force water underground and then they have a way of taking that salt-saturated water and extracting the salt from the water. But anyway, what it leaves is a cave, and I'm not even thrilled about that, but be that as it may, the caves exist and somebody got this great idea years ago that you could use caverns like this to store liquid petroleum gas in. And these caves can go on for a long, long ways. In fact, they sometimes connect with other fissures and pockets within the ground that can lead many miles away. So the potential danger is this. You've got gas that can escape from the caves and you can have somebody mowing their lawn eight miles away and doggone it, the lawnmower doesn't have a spark arrester and kaboom, it can take out potentially blocks of homes and it could be a lot worse if the tragedy occurs, you know, very close to where the largest amount of the gas is, is being stored or where at least we think the gas is being stored because it can move all over the place. So the potential danger is just enormous. And if you don't think that it can happen, then consider this. It has happened in the past. And you can Google incidences of where this has happened, where they've used abandoned caves of other kinds to store liquid petroleum gas. So that's the reason for the fight, because the potential loss of life is something that we wouldn't even want to think about. The potential as well to the environment, to the loss of the tourism industry, the wine industry is also equally substantial. The devastation could be like nothing we've ever seen in terms of, I was going to call it a natural disaster, but it's really an unnatural disaster because it's something of our creation. So anyway, there's a group called Gas Free Seneca, and I'm looking at their latest post, giant letters that says, we won. And uh, here's what they say. The people of the Finger Lakes region are rejoicing at news today that a controversial liquefied petroleum gas LPG storage project proposed for Seneca Lake will not go forward as planned. Citing concerns about community character of the Finger Lakes, cavern stability, and the risks to the agritourism economy, the State Department of Environmental Conservation denied a draft permit for the project, presenting a likely insurmountable hurdle for proponents. Now, there's a lot of politics involved in this as well, and I just want to say this, you know, uh, wine is not political. Wine is beloved by people on both sides of the aisle and in the middle of the aisle. And, and generally, I don't really like to get political on this show uh, as well, although politics is kind of fun to discuss while you're drinking wine, I would say. But I'm just really focused in on the impact 
to the uh, agritourism business and, and especially the wine business in the area. But of course, the potential loss of life is, you know, so much more important than that. But the story does trickle into my realm when it impacts the people that I uh, want so much to be able to promote. And I love the wines of the Finger Lakes region. They're absolutely terrific. And if you haven't had them, check it out. Maybe go buy some Finger Lakes wine just to celebrate this really great victory. So again, I want to emphasize very clearly, I'm not making a political statement here. I'm hopefully making a statement of fact. We absolutely should never permit things like this to potentially impact our lives and our livelihood. And in the case of the Finger Lakes, a great deal of that livelihood comes from wine. So we're going to get the entire story because it's fascinating. It really is. So that's the end of that story for now. I've got a discussion on the lighter side that will come when we return, but I do want to make sure to recognize sponsor for the long foreseeable future. It's a winery that I am so proud of because it was built by literally my oldest friend. Uh, we went to first grade together, if you can believe that. His name is John Wagner. He and his wife, Jill, have built Peak Ranch, and that is in the Santa Rita Hills of the central coast of California. It's not because this is a friend of mine that we're talking about the wines, but let me be really, really clear. I learned of these wines and read about these wines and the huge scores that they were getting. And John is somebody I don't get a chance to talk to more than once or twice every couple of years. I didn't connect the dots. But, you know, here's somebody that I've known forever, but I hadn't realized that our paths were crossing in the wine industry. And he's just literally released some of his first wines, and they are raking in some amazing scores. I mean, just completely off the charts. I've had the wines. They're among the best coming out of that region, and partially because the grapes are being grown on a very historic property that you might know from the movie Sideways. So go to peakranch.com. Order yourself some Syrah, some incredible Pinot Noir. And, you know, I'm, I'm not always the biggest Pinot fan, but these Pinots, wow, big wow. Chardonnay, big wow. It's peakranch.com. That's P-E-A-K-E ranch.com. And you can order the wines online in uh, most places that you're hearing this show. So check it out. And we'll be back with more Grape Encounters right after this. The best way to avoid spitting wine is to avoid wines unworthy of being swallowed. David will be right back in a spit second. Oops, my bad. Make that split second. In the immortal words of our host, David Wilson, show me a pretentious wine drinker and I'll show you his new Tesla and the date he's hoping to impress. I beg to differ, sir. My palate is incredibly refined. Welcome to the world's most down-to-earth wine show, Grape Encounters. Here's your host, David Wilson. with Grape Encounters Radio, and we're going to change the subject now for a little bit. I have spent the last three weeks more time in the wine bar that we operate under the name Grape Encounters Emporium than I've probably ever spent in there since we opened the bar four and a half years ago. Now, we built the place for you, by the way. 
And we've had literally thousands of listeners come in since we opened up the bar, and they've come from every corner of the U.S., and I'm so appreciative when somebody walks in and says, hey, I'm from South Dakota, and we listen to you on this radio station, or maybe they listen online. But we get people from the East Coast, we get people from even Europe that listen to the show online. So it's always a pleasure and I think an honor to be able to meet you. And if I'm not in the bar, you just let the staff know and they'll ring me up. I'm probably in the studio and as soon as I get a moment, I'll come right over and we'll visit and we'll have a good time. But there are some rules that I want to share with you about tasting rooms and wine bars that I probably have not spoken about before. But I think they're important based upon some of the just, you know, funny observations that I've made over the past couple of weeks and actually over many years, in fact. So here here we go. And now rule number one is this. Don't get upset if you have to pay a tasting fee if it's a good value because you can take your cell phone and pull up your calculator and figure out really quickly whether or not you're getting a good deal. Most tastes are about an ounce. They sometimes are less. And I don't think actually you can get a good sense of a wine with less than an ounce taste, but I've certainly seen smaller tastes. But let's say it's an ounce. There are five ounces to an average glass of wine. So if it's a $100 bottle of wine, you're getting basically $5 worth in that one glass. So you would have to get 10 glasses of wine at that value to break even. But remember, you're also paying for the glasses to be washed. You're paying for the privilege of getting to taste something that you might not otherwise buy, but you want to know what it's like to taste a really, really great wine that you've read about, and then now you can die. So that's rule number one. Rule number two is this. Don't engage the person behind the tasting room bar or the wine bar if you're not really interested because it is insufferable to me to sit and listen to somebody who works in a tasting room drone on and give the speech about soils and wind direction and clones and all of the other things that go into making wine, the minutiae, if you will, because there are times when it's fascinating to me and there are times when I just want to taste the wine and go, wow, that's good. And if it's, wow, that's good, I might ask questions, but you know, that's just me. But so many people, and I'm going to guess it's got to be like half the consumers, and maybe it's way more than that, really don't want that information. Now, some people do want the information and don't understand the information, and they're actually in the tasting rooms to get an education, and I think that's noble of you to do that. But when you consider the fact that a lot of the people that work in wine bars give that same speech like, you know, 50 times a day, they're going to thank you for just being honest and saying, you know what, I appreciate all that, but I really just want to enjoy the wine and judge it for what it is, and, and that stuff doesn't matter to me. Now, if you think that's rude, consider this. I just bought, my wife and I just bought a year ago, a Toyota Prius. I love the car. It's comfortable. It gets me where I want to go in a zippy fashion. All the buttons are in the right place. It's really quiet. It gets great gas mileage, you know, all of these things. But I've never lifted the hood of the car. 
in our parents' generation, and I know there's still a lot of you who repair cars and, and do that stuff, but people were much more intimate with what was going on under the hood because a lot of times they had to fix things and you could fix things on your own a lot easier. And so now as things get more complicated, you know, we just blow it off and just go, I love my car. I'm never lifting the hood and I feel good about that. And I think you should have the same attitude toward wine and not worry about it. Okay, rule number three is this. Buyer beware. Be very careful when you're in a tasting room and the people who work for wineries are probably going to get really mad at me. And I'm going to get some letters for this, but I really don't care. So much of the time when you're in a tasting room, there may be in the corner or in multiple corners – stacks of cases of wine that are deeply, deeply, deeply discounted. This is what I want you to do. Ask why they're being discounted so deeply because there's a reason and it can be a lot of different things. It can be that the wine is terrible and believe me when I tell you that even the best wineries will sometimes make some wine that isn't very good. And sometimes we don't know this until the wine comes out of the barrel. And by that time, it may be too late or that wine might get blended into something else and tuned up and tweaked with who knows what, and it'll taste okay. And that's just fine with me if you're okay with that. But a lot of the time, it's just it's just not that good. And so they mark it down 50% and say, wow, super special. You just tasted a whole bunch of really good wines, but for some odd reason, they're not going to let you taste that wine. <laughs> and I know why. Now, another reason might be that the wine is getting old. And you say to yourself, well, that's a good thing, right? Wine is supposed to age. Well, if it's white wine, that's a very questionable thought. If it's red wine, not all red wine ages very well. And they may have come to the conclusion that this wine is on the edge, that it maybe only has six months or a year or two years worth of life left in it. And so they're, they're going to dump it. Now, I think honest tasting room people will tell you that. They'll tell you that, that this wine is past its prime. So if you're going to buy it and you're going to buy a case of it, drink it in the next six months and you're getting the greatest deal of a lifetime. But if you're going to store it in your wine cellar, you're just going to have a mess on your hands two years later. So really be careful. Always ask why something is on sale. There's going to be a reason and some of those reasons are not so kosher. And if somebody's fibbing to you, you're going to see it in their face. And uh, that's it. Now, I'm happy, and I'm going to let you go for uh, a minute here. And we're going to come back and talk about luxury wines. This is a very interesting subject with a very interesting guest. So stay with me. We'll be back in just a second. At Grape Encounters, we're all about sharing. That's why it would be a crying shame if you didn't join our Facebook group page. Just search for Grape Encounters Radio on Facebook. It's where we're constantly sharing the latest wine news and information while you're waiting for your next episode of Grape Encounters. David will be right back as soon as he's through unfriending anyone who doesn't love wine. Oh, I guess it's going to be a very short break.
I love it. I love it. I love it. It is going to be Wine Song Weekend on the Mendocino Coast of California, September 7th and September 8th. Enobites, which is one of the most influential wine websites in the world, calls it America's Best Charity Wine Event. I will take it one step further. I've been the last few years, and I say it's America's Best Food and Wine Event, period, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that it's held in the beautiful Mendocino Botanical Gardens. You have to see them to believe them, but you also have to see and taste the amazing food and the huge selection of wines from all over the place, but mostly coming from Mendocino County, where some of the best wines in California are made, some of the best wines in the world. This event benefits the Mendocino Coast Hospital, which services a huge area. It does so much good for so many people, and it is so much fun, and it is something that absolutely has to be on your bucket list. September 7th and 8th, you can purchase your tickets online at winesong.org, and you can learn more, of course, about the event there as well. You'll see from the photographs that it's the place that you want to be this year. You also won't want to miss the silent auction and the live auction on Saturday. It is like something out of a movie. It's so fun, so amazing, and I'm so excited to tell you that I have two really, really exciting auction lots in this year's event, so you won't want to miss that. We'll see you at Winesong. Again, get the information at winesong.org. And remember, no matter where you're from, people come to Winesong from all over the world. We'll see you there. They say wine is a truth serum, which is why you'll never hear any fake news on Grape Encounters Radio. Here's David. All right, back with Grape Encounters Radio. Gosh, there's one topic that I really think we have neglected, and I saw a very interesting research study that came out. It has to do with what price we pay for luxury wine. And one of the authors of the study is with me now. She is Liz Tosh, Dr. Liz Tosh. And what an interesting study. But before we get into this, I want to just mention the fact that you were the first female master of wine in California. That is just amazing. Awesome. When did that happen? Uh, 2011, and I'm pretty excited because I'm fifth-generation California, so California is near and dear to my heart, so oh. it was thrilling to have that happen. Oh, awesome. All right, well, let's jump into your study because we like to, I think, categorize wine a lot more these days, and I hear this term cocktail wine all the time. That just gets under my skin, cocktail wine, because it <laughs> makes the wine sound not very important and not really worth drinking, so I kind of avoid that term, but luxury wine is a term, I guess, not a lot of people use because they can't afford it. But the real question is, what is it? And you've done a great job of defining what a luxury wine is. So can you just kind of jump into the study and help us wrap our arms around what a luxury wine is? Uh, Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to do so. Well, you know, it's interesting because we were actually in the last year or two approached by some of the Napa and Sonoma wineries to do research in this topic because luxury wine research hasn't really been carried out much in the U.S. It is in Europe, but not much here. And so we started diving into the the research literature out there, and then I spent three months in Burgundy. That's where some of the highest-priced wines in the world come from. And so what we ended up with in terms of a definition And luxury actually is not just wine, but any luxury product. It's defined as anything that is desirable and more than necessary and ordinary. 
So it's a special product that you're buying for a special occasion usually, and therefore the price is going to be higher. It's not your everyday drinking wine or your cocktail wine. It's a real special wine that you're buying. And so obviously the price is going to be a little bit higher. I love that first phrase, more than necessary. I have an awful lot of friends who think that the wine that I drink is more than necessary, but it's it's nothing in comparison to, you know, you talked about Bordeaux and you can spend thousands of dollars on a bottle of wine there. Oh, yeah. One of these days I'm going to, but anyway. Yeah, exactly. But that seems to me to be a very pliable term, more than necessary. What, you know, how do you then define more than necessary? Yeah, so uh, what we did is, you know, if you take a look at, at Wine Searcher, the top 50 most expensive wines in the world, they're all more than $1,000 a bottle. But when we started looking at the research, you know, like Nelson Scan data, for example, anything above $25 is considered expensive. So we ended up proposing a luxury wine price continuum, and we ended up defining it as affordable luxury wine is 50 to $99. And so if you look at luxury, it's sort of on a scale or a continuum. And, you know, even other products, like I like to use BMW as an example. You know, sort of the entry-level BMW, which is a luxury car, is the 3 Series. But then you can go all the way up to the 7 Series, which is sort of at the far end of the continuum. So same with wine. You have affordable luxury, $50 to $99. Then you have true luxury wine, which is 100 to 499 And then what we call icon wine, this is something truly special, 500 to 999 and then a dream wine is over a thousand dollars a bottle and a dream wine is something we all aspire to you know a lot of people say they want to taste latash or romani conti or you know lafitte and these are dream wines and you know one day hopefully we can all taste them but anybody in wine you know sort of has those out there as the holy grail of wines and so we wanted to create a luxury wine price continuum that really reflected what was happening in global wine pricing now. So it's still a proposal, and we're looking for feedback and pushback, and we're getting some. But uh, we just wanted to put something out there to start the conversation on what's really happening in the world of luxury wine. I think that is so amazing. You're right. You know, it needs to be done. Well, I say it needs to be done, but this is a question that, you know, I get asked all the time, not just because I host a wine show, but because I also am a wine retailer. People feel the necessity to put wine into categories and classifications So I'm glad that somebody has at least taken a swing at it. Tell me what kind of pushback, first of all, you've gotten, or have you gotten more praise than pushback? Oh, both, I would say. Praise for at least attempting to address the issue, because it's never clearly been addressed. And then pushback, just a lot of questions. So what does this mean? Well, how does this mean? Or how does it work in this case? Or what about vintage variation? Or what about currency fluctuation? Those are all the kinds of questions we've received. I guess in a way, it's kind of like being just on the outskirts of a great AVA. If you are in the AVA, it's worth a lot more than if you are, you know, five feet away from it. Doesn't matter. You're out of that category. And I can see where there would be some pushback from winemakers where they would want their wine to be considered a finer wine without having to adjust the price. But of course, it's ultimately up to them to play with the price. Yes, exactly. I mean, the winemaker sets the suggested retail price. And then, of course, by the time it gets to the wine shop, it changes. But, you know, this continuum is dynamic. And so a wine, you know, might enter, you know, the the price category below affordable luxury. And then over time and with vintage, you know, if it's a really good vintage or so forth, it, it could enter the luxury continuum. Or opposite, maybe it came out at one price and then some collectors sell it for a long time. And maybe it it goes down in price if it's not sold at the right time. 
So it, it is dynamic, and, and currency fluctuation also would play in this. You know, this is in U.S. dollars. It needs to be adjusted for other markets. We're talking to Dr. Liz Tosh. She is at Sonoma State University, a master of wine, and one of the authors of a study that seeks to define and classify wine according to how, well, let's just say, luxurious it is. I would guess, Liz, that if the wine industry did embrace this kind of classification, I would think that it would influence prices a little bit, that people would nudge the wine one direction or another just to help classify the wine or make the wine look more favorable. In other words, you know, if, you, if you've got a wine that's, you know, $470, you know, why not push the price to $501 and be in a higher classification? Yeah. Do you see that happening? Exactly. Well, I think that that's probably one of the dangers of this kind of classification. But it all depends on the consumer. I mean, the consumer has the ultimate power because they're going to decide whether or not they're going to pay that much for that wine. But again, we are trying to give some kind of definition to what luxury wine is. I mean, in other product categories, for example, a purse. You know, a dream purse is over $3,000. So a dream wine at over 1000 doesn't seem as expensive. <laughs> yeah, except that the purse you get to keep, the wine is gone after, uh, you know, one dinner. <laughs> that's... Yeah, you know, that, you know that's, the, that's the interesting thing about wine. I had a top producer in Burgundy tell me, you know, wine is the ultimate luxury product because as soon as you drink it, it's gone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's true. <laughs> I don't know. You can look at the bottle, but, but it's gone. I don't know if you've had the same experience as I have, but uh, the empty bottle doesn't go for much. Sadly, though, there is a resale market for expensive empty wine bottles, is so there, is there, not is, for good reason. Is there really? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I had no idea. I knew <laughs> yes. I, I knew I was saving these for, mm-hmm. for a reason. All right, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about this. There are a number of other elements that you've identified that also contribute to you know the classification of the wine, and I want to get into that, things like aesthetics and scarcity. And so we'll jump mm-hmm. into that. We are talking about luxury wine with Dr. Liz Tosh at Sonoma State University, just up north in California. And we will return. I'm going to go grab some luxury wine while we're in the commercial break. And uh, we will return and sip some luxury wine and uh, slip a little deeper into this topic when we return with Grape Encounters Radio. Your Grape Encounter with David Wilson will continue from our Central Coast Wine Country studio in the quaint, friendly, and historic town of Atascadero, California. Don't forget to join our Grape Encounters Radio Facebook group page, where incredibly fun people just like you share ideas and frequently get together to share a bottle as well. Like certain wines, he's syrupy, sweet, and has long legs. Here's David Wilson. All right, back with Grape Encounters Radio and my very special guest, Dr. Liz Tosh from Sonoma State University. She and some of her colleagues have put together an interesting study that I think you'll find fascinating. We talked about price classifications of the wines, affordable luxury being $50 to $99, a luxury wine, $100 to $499, an iconic wine or icon wine, $500 to $999, and then the dream wine, $1,000 plus. But there are other factors that contribute to how desirable a wine might be. And you've listed some of those like scarcity and aesthetics. Can we jump into that for a second and explain? 
Yes, yeah, because high price is only one aspect of luxury wine. Probably one of the most important aspects is very, very high quality. I mean, exceptionally high stellar quality, authenticity, wine that's from a top vineyard, crafted by a highly skilled winemaker. So, you know, you can taste the quality in the glass. That's one of the really important attributes, and it's authentic. And then related to that, lately, sustainability has been added to the luxury wine criteria. Consumers really want to know that the wine was made in an environmentally friendly fashion and with social responsibility. Sustainability is the newest attribute in the luxury research. And it's just because I think maybe a lot of people who are spending money at that price point, they're just now starting to question, okay, well, wait a minute, how was this made? You know, that kind of thing. So it's a newer one. And I think it, it to well, me, I think it links to high quality. I've done a lot of tastings and I can taste the difference in sometimes organic and biodynamic wines, but not always. Well, I think going back to your example in the first segment, you were talking about the BMW and using that as a metaphor. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking sort of about like a Tesla and the idea that here's, mm-hmm. here's a car that is so socially responsible. It's everything that you would want in an automobile and it's very luxurious at the same time. So I could see where that same idea would be working in, in wine as well, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And Tesla also did something very smart in that when they entered the market, they came out with a higher price car. And now that the brand has been established, then they start coming out with a more affordable version or affordable luxury, as we say. That's usually the best way to do it. You don't want to start at a low price and then try to go up. You want to start at a pretty high level of quality and then you can come out with that second brand or second label. This is a question that I get all the time. And I'm sure you do as an MW, you've got to get this question a lot. And it's the question of, is it worth it? People aren't, I think, afraid to buy a $100, let's say, bottle of wine if they're absolutely confident that they're going to have a really memorable experience with that bottle of wine. But as you and I both know, for a lot of people, the value of that wine is lost on them because some people can't really tell the difference between a $100 bottle of wine and a $10 bottle of wine. They just don't have the taste buds for it. And frankly, you know, it explains why there are so many people drinking inexpensive wine because it makes them happy. And they don't really care about that price. But for the person who can really appreciate a great wine, the question always is asked, is that bottle of wine worth the price, $100 or $500? How do you answer that? And how arbitrary do you think wine pricing really is? That's a great question. And I think that sort of picks up the other four attributes of luxury and that scarcity, aesthetic, symbolic, and privilege. So even somebody who isn't that sophisticated in wine knowledge, doesn't have a lot of background in it, if somebody explains to them that this is a really scarce bottle and they can look at the aesthetics of it and the beautiful label or the packaging and they understand the symbolism and basically the privilege of, of tasting it. I mean, you could say this about a special cheese or caviar or something else as well. Once somebody understands that this is a real special dish or a glass of wine that they're going to be tasting, that it sort of imbues that they call it the luxury magic, the magic of luxury. The product takes on this very special experiential moment that right. that people are sharing. I remember I did have somebody tell me their first taste of Latash was disappointing for them because they had expected so much more. And they were used to drinking Russian River Pinot Noirs, which are much more fruity than the earthiness of a Burgundy. But still, the fact that they were tasting this bottle of wine that was over $1,000 in special vintage made the experience for them very memorable. Well, one of the things that I think shocks a lot of people is when they have an opportunity to drink something that's quite old. And mm-hmm. they have the expectation that 50-year-old bottle of wine is going to taste amazing. You know, if it survived, it's going to taste amazing. And more 
often than not, for the general consumer, it's not going to taste amazing. It's going to taste old. And you have to appreciate it for what it is. I mean, some wines do age very beautifully, but a lot of wines, they just taste old. And that, for the wine aficionado, that's the magic. You know, you're tasting all of that history and you, mm-hmm. f- you forgive the fact mm-hmm. that it's not fresh and crisp anymore, but you love mm-hmm. the fact that it's aged so well. That, I think, is something that shocks people a lot. And especially when you're drinking wines from, say, a region like Napa Valley that's not really all that old as far as a producing right. re- region mm-hmm. is concerned. The wines that they make today are just vastly better than the wines they were making 50 years ago. Exactly. Exactly. And you're sort of t- bringing in the aspect of wine knowledge. So a beginner may not know that, but somebody who's been tasting wines for a long time does know that, just like you do. And if you can sort of explain that story to the person and share that experience, it makes it even more special. All right. There were a couple of other things that were on that infographic that was published recently from your study. And one in particular that struck me as interesting is privilege. So let's dive into that for a second, because there are a lot of people who I think feel a little, I hate to use the word jealous, but envious that they don't get to drink the wines that the rich and famous get to drink. How important is privilege? Um, They say that it's pretty important. And a lot of the privilege comes from older vineyards, older brands, it's not wine families that have been established for centuries, and so the product is scarce. And so there's privilege that comes from the background of the wine, but also from the chance to drink it. That's sort of what luxury is about. There's a saying out there that it should be a little difficult to be able to obtain this product. That's why some people, uh, you know, dislike luxury. They say it's not democratic and it creates the sense of divide, but it also, on the other side, creates a chance to dream. And so if you're privileged enough, even if it's just to taste a teaspoon of this very, very special old, old magical wine, you're going to remember that. I think that's absolutely true. I just have one quick last question. How accurate do you think pricing is today? I mean, are we getting it right? The people who are producing the wine wine and pricing the wine? Hmm. <laughs> that's a loaded question. That's a, that's, a, that's a tough question. Yeah, because price and quality are not always in tandem there. Right. And so, you know, you might have a brand new producer. You know, one of the other things about luxury is they say it takes decades to create a luxury brand. It doesn't happen overnight. Now, you might be a cult sensation, but how long can you make that last? You can price your wine wherever you want to, but the truth is the proof is in the tasting. Exactly. In the end, the consumer yeah. and the reviewer is going to make the final decision. And, you know, like last night, I had a beautiful bottle of Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand that was $8, and it was exquisite. Liz, I appreciate you coming on the show. It was really, really an enlightening conversation. It was fun. Have a great day. Okay, you too. It's going to do it for Grape Encounters today. We'll see you next week, and uh, enjoy your week, and enjoy your wine, and life is way too short to drink crummy wine. Remember that. But drink what you love, and don't let anybody tell you that you have to drink something different. Your Grape Encounter isn't over. We're just taking a breather until next week's edition. 